If you have your Bibles, I'd like to encourage you to join me in the Old Testament book of Joshua. There is something very powerful, there's something very moving, very important about the last words that an individual speaks. And in this passage of Scripture this morning, we're going to be listening in as Joshua speaks to the children of Israel for the very last time. It is intriguing to me as I study through the Bible that it is full of many moving farewells. I mean, all the way through, we are able to witness lives of people who are just like us. We're able to encounter them in good times and in bad. We can experience victory with them, and we can witness their defeat, and we can learn from all of it. All the way through the Bible, we get to listen in on important people share their last words. Particularly distinctive to me is the Apostle Paul talking to the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, giving them a long goodbye and exhorting them as pastors to keep the wolves out of the flock. I think of the Lord Jesus Christ as he ascends into heaven. And the last words that he speaks to the disciples is that you are to go and share the gospel message with all the world. But there is no longer farewell given anywhere in scripture than that of Joshua to the children of Israel in chapters 23 and 24 of the book that bears his name. Now, you may need to be reminded that Joshua is leading the children of Israel in the conquest and the settlement of the promised land. Joshua has served alongside of Moses. Joshua witnessed the parting of the Red Sea. Joshua witnessed the 40-year wilderness wandering, which actually commenced after he was willing to take a stand on faith, believing that they could, in fact, conquer the promised land. As Moses passed off the scene in Joshua chapter 1, we listen in to an intimate conversation as God speaks to Joshua, who will assume leading these some two million people as they will cross the Jordan River and immediately come up against the city of Jericho and then exercise all of the discernment necessary in the settlement and distribution of the promised land. And God said to him, listen now, be strong and very courageous. You can do it. And now Joshua has led the children of Israel for a long period of time. He is aware that he is now an old man, and so he gathers everyone together and he speaks to them his last words. Now, all of us can deduce that someone that is sharing their last words certainly are going to settle on what they deem to be the most important things to communicate. We can be aware that there is real passion and that there is urgency in the speech of Joshua. We can sense that he is anxious about the future of the children of Israel as he, their leader, now passes off the scene. And I'll pick up in Joshua chapter 24. I'll just read two verses to begin. I think these are probably familiar to you. In verse 14 of chapter 24, Joshua says, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, 
Choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When I was a child, I was encouraged to be the right kind of leader. And one of the things that was taught to me was that there are two kinds of people that are in the world. There are thermometers and there are thermostats. Thermometers move according to the temperature of the room that they are in, and thermostats set the temperature of the room that they are in. And as we study Joshua, and it is an incredibly effective study on leadership, what we are going to see and have already witnessed just in the two verses that we read is that Joshua is a tone setter. Joshua does not take the temperature of the room. Joshua does not take sense of where the crowd is. He is willing to declare unto them where he stands and what his expectations are. Joshua has gathered everyone together, and I believe that he is sharing with them a final warning. The final warning that Joshua is going to share with the children of Israel before he passes off the scene is of utmost importance, because what Joshua does is he attempts to take the people that are listening to him and to reset their vision of God. Because he is aware that an individual's vision of God is the single greatest determining factor for everything practical in their life. How you view God dictates your relationships. How you view God dictates your worship. How you view God dictates the decisions that you make. In effect, how you view God dictates the very course of your life. And what Joshua is going to do long before he pushes the people to make a decision is he's going to renew their view of God in his speech, which he begins back in chapter 23. And I'll direct your attention there. In the first two verses, it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest unto Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua waxed old and stricken in age. How many of you can identify with waxing old and being stricken in age? That's a Bible term. Waxed old and stricken in age. What it is communicating is you would not be confused. When you looked at Joshua, you are looking at an old man. You say that's very mean. Well, listen to verse 2. And Joshua called for all Israel and for their elders and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers and said unto them, I am old and stricken in age. He is not denying the fact that the end is near. I don't know if God gave him specific insight. I don't know what it is that compelled him to call all the leaders and the judges and the officers and the tribes together. But this is a mass gathering of people. And Joshua wants them to hear Some very specific things. And what Joshua will do is basically alternate between two points. He will remind them that God has been faithful to them. And he will exhort them to be faithful to God. Notice what he says in verse 3. You have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto all these nations because of you. Now listen to this phrase. For the Lord your God is he that hath fought For you, Joshua is reminding the children of Israel that ultimately God has brought them victory. Now that sounds incredibly elementary. 
But remember that the children of Israel are notoriously rebellious against God. Remember that their spirit is antagonistic towards authority. Remember that they are critical and they are complainers. And the Old Testament word is they are murmurers. They are dominated by a lack of faith. In fact, when they got to the edge of the Red Sea, they were in a complete panic, probably rightfully so, until God miraculously parted the water. Having seen God parted the Red Sea and drowned the Egyptian army, immediately they are complaining that they have no water which God provides. Not long after, they are complaining that they have no food and God sends them manna. Not long after, they are complaining about the manna that God sends and so he sends them more and they complain again and it's water and it's leadership and it's where they're dwelling. Notoriously, they lack faith. In effect, what I would say is they're just like us. They are always questioning the circumstances of their life because they are doubting what God has given them. And Joshua says to them, I want you to take a look around you. I want you to historically remember. I want you, as you look around you, to be aware of this fact. Everything that you have is because God gave it to you. Everything that you are is because God enabled you to be. You remember that God overthrew the Egyptians, and you remember that God provided in the wilderness. He even shares a little story with them about Balak the king who hired Balaam the prophet to try to curse them of Israel. And God said, I wouldn't allow him to do it. I have taken care of you. You remember coming over the Jordan River. You remember the walls of Jericho coming down. Look around you. Everything that you have is because I gave it to you. God ultimately brought the victory and did all of the fighting. I love what one author said. There is only one entry in Canaan's hall of fame, God. And Joshua, as the leader, set that tone. In verse 9, he comes back and it says, For the Lord hath driven out from before you great nations and strong. But as for you, no man hath been able to stand before you unto this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand for the Lord your God. He it is that fighteth for you as he hath promised you. In other words, never lose sight of the fact that victory in Canaan is because of God and not because of you. Now, wrapped up in there, in my estimation, is a scathing rebuke within the Word of God. And the rebuke is this. Far too often we are carried away with what we do for God, and we are not impressed enough with what God does through us. In fact, much preaching and much ministerial fervor is surrounding with what are you doing? What are you practically doing? What are you practically giving? How are you practically serving? And we put so much emphasis on what it is that we bring to the table and what it is that we offer. And in reality, Joshua is trying to say, settle this in your mind. Long before I compel you to a decision, get over yourself. Because everything that you have, God has gifted to you. We need to be reminded of that simple fact. He'll continue what I would consider his sermon. When he gets to verse 6, he says, Be ye therefore very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, that ye turn not aside therefrom to the right hand nor to the left. Here's what he says. It is not only important for you to remember that God has given you everything, it is important for you to be reminded that you have to obey the word of God. When Moses passed off the scene, 
Joshua was dominated by fear. I don't believe that Joshua was the strongest of leaders. The reason I can say that with conviction is because in chapter 1, as I referenced earlier, God says to him on multiple occasions, be strong and very courageous, you can do it. God doesn't say to Joshua three times, be strong and very courageous, because he was strong and very courageous. He says that to him because he knows that he is want, he is willing to fail and capitulate, that he needs strength. And the very words that Joshua speaks in chapter 23 and verse 6 hearken back to his speech from God. In effect, he is saying, I won't be here to make certain that you are aligning with the law of God. But you don't need me, you have the law of God. Don't do what the law says just because I am here. And we've already lived this once with Moses. Have you ever dropped your children off to spend the night somewhere? And laid down some rules for them. And said things like, listen, please, please be nice. Please be obedient. I want you to say yes, ma'am. And I want you to say yes, sir. And whatever they give you to eat, I want you to eat it and like it. Please like it. And when they give you something, I want you to say thank you. And I want you to say please. And what we do is we expect our children to live at a level that they do not live with inside of our homes. What we are expecting them to do is rise to a level of behavior that otherwise is not imposed upon them, but we are communicating something to them. I won't be there to give you a look when you don't say please. I won't be there to remind you, go say thank you. I won't be there to get you straightened out when you go to the right hand or to the left. I'm laying it all out beforehand. Do the right thing. And what Joshua is doing in this moment is he is saying, don't do the right thing because I'm here making sure you do. Do the right thing because you have the law of God and live your life according to what he has already communicated. If we could just pause and straighten our lives out in these two ways, we would spiritually mature in significant ways. Everything you have is because God gave it to you. Get over yourself. You already have everything that God expects of you. How about instead of whining and complaining, adhering to what he has already told you to do? And then Joshua says something that is very situation specific to the children of Israel. But I think there is incredible application to it. Remember that the children of Israel all along the way have been inundated with pagan worship. In Egypt, no doubt, they were witnesses to the Egyptian way of worshiping false gods. In fact, you can do studies where each one of the ten plagues in the nation of Egypt overthrew one of their false gods, be it the god Hek or the god Ra, indicating to them that your god, the true god, the god of Israel, is powerful over every other god. As they wandered through the wilderness... They were encountering the Amorites who would worship Moloch, who demanded that your infants would be sacrificed in a burning furnace. Terrible things. And what we read here in verse 7 of chapter 23 is this. Come not among these nations, these that remain among you, neither make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, 
Neither serve them nor bow yourselves unto them. Do you see the downward spiral? If all we were doing was being students of the Bible and we arrived at Joshua 23, 7, we could see within there a descending staircase. Don't use the name of those false gods. They have no business even coming out of your mouth because they are insignificant. They are insincere. They are not true. Do not swear by those gods. There is no power behind that oath because those gods do not exist. Do not serve those gods. Whatever you do, do not bow down yourselves and worship those false gods. It is a descending staircase. It's a downward spiral. And what Joshua is saying is this. I'm not going to be here to be the voice of God for you. You are eventually going to have to make a personal decision whether this is real for you or not. And so before I compel you to that moment of decision, I want to renew your view of God. Whatever you have, good, bad, or otherwise, is because God gave it to you. He has articulated his law to you, and he expects that you will obey it. And if you're actually going to live it out with some spiritual maturity, do not compromise in even the smallest of ways because sin is an insidious thing. Sin is always and ever trying to creep in. And so he doesn't just say to them, don't bow down and worship false gods because they could probably check that box. He starts and says, don't even mention their names. Don't swear an oath by them, don't serve them in any capacity because it won't be long if you compromise in little ways that you'll capitulate in big ways and you'll be actually standing against God. His final speech is vitally important. There's urgency, there's passion. He's clearing up their view of God and now he'll challenge them. In fact, when you jump into chapter 24, and we won't take the time, and I know you're glad for it, the first 13 verses, he is summarizing how God has helped them. When we get to verse 14, which was our text, he says in the beginning, Now therefore, in effect, because of everything that I've said from chapter 23 and verse 1 until now, based on everything that I have shared, based on everything that I have told you, fear the Lord. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. Does anyone wonder where Joshua stands when it comes to serving the Lord of Israel? No, he has just said to them, based on everything that I have articulated, that I have rehearsed, that I have reset, that I have reminded Based on that, fear the Lord God. Let him be the deciding factor in everything that you do. Choose to serve him. And that brings us to verse 15, a verse that is famous, but I happen to believe is commonly misinterpreted. He says, and if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. You see, oftentimes we'll get to that verse and we think what Joshua is saying is you've got a choice to make. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve another God. So you make that choice. That is not what he's saying. In verse 14, he's already said, serve the Lord. But if it seems evil, if you seem to go against serving the Lord, now you have a choice. You can either choose to serve the gods of the Egyptians 
that your fathers witnessed and in the past they capitulated to and which the God of Israel showed himself powerful over or you can serve the gods of the Amorites, the gods of this land of Canaan whom God has overthrown. What you are in effect hearing Joshua say is this, if you don't want to serve God, then what in the world do you have? If you don't want to serve God, then in effect you have nothing left. If you don't want to serve God who is powerful, then what you have left is all of these impotent, powerless facades. So make a choice between all of these empty gods and serve one of them if you will not serve the God of Israel. That's significant. Because he's saying, choose. You have a choice to make. Choose. The tense of that verb means that you have to choose over and over and over again. You must choose today, and then you must choose again tomorrow. And then you must choose again the next day, and then the next day, and the next day. When we speak of love in the New Testament, we speak of it as agape love. It is a love of choice, and it is a love of will. Whenever you find a couple at their wedding day, you never wonder whether or not they love each other. You see it. You watch it. It's almost silly and flippant and frivolous how they fawn over each other. But let them spend a few years together. Anyone in here married more than a week? And you will be aware that love does not always begin in here. Where you see that person and you think, that's my person. Sometimes you have to say things like, that is my person. That is my person. It is a choice that you make, not an emotion that drives you. And what we think oftentimes about service before the Lord is because I'm a believer and because I'm a Christian, it will just well up inside me and I will be compelled to service. I will be compelled to do the right thing. It isn't that way as Joshua is communicating here. And may I remind you that at this point in time, he is north of a 100 years old. By his own testament, he is old and stricken in age, and he says, even at my advanced age, even having led millions of people, even having settled the promised land, I still have to get up in the morning and make the choice to serve God. You have a choice to make. Don't wait for the seasons of life to change. Don't wait for some warm feeling to overwhelm you before you step in. Understand, you choose it. Emphasis on you, because he says, choose you. Do you hear how personal that is? No one can make this choice for you. Choose you this day. You have this moment now to make a decision, and it's personal. Stop and think for a second about what motivates you. What motivates you? What motivates you to do right? Sometimes people will say things like, do you realize that if the IRS removes the charitable contribution from the church, people will stop giving. Well, I think it's a matter of motivation, right? Were you giving to the church? Were you giving for a tax break? Or were you giving to the Lord? I think sometimes you can see it on people. The only reason they attend church is because if they don't, their spouse will nag them to death. That's why I'm here. I mean, that, and you guys pay me to be here. I forget that part too. What motivates you to do what you do? Listen, this is a personal thing and we must question. We must understand how personal is your choice and my choice to serve the Lord. Who will you serve? Choose. You have to do this every day. 
not going to overwhelm you with some feeling of warmth. You must personally make this choice because you are serving somebody. You are serving something. Perhaps that's a better way to say it. Whoever you are living for, whoever's calling the shots in your life, that is your God. So choose which one of them you're going to serve. Joshua kind of draws the net. When I was in seminary, I had a hermeneutics professor who said in a sermon, you have to have a definitive clincher. Every sermon needs a definitive clincher. Joshua's has one. I think I'm to about one out of every 11 of mine has a definitive clincher in it. The rest, whatever you get, take it. Here's his definitive clincher. Now he's built this whole scene. Remember who God is. Everything that you have is because God gave it to you. You better obey the law of God. He's already articulated it to you. And don't compromise even in the little areas. You have a personal choice to make. No one can make it for you. Who's calling the shots in your life? And now in verse 16 of Joshua 24, the people are compelled to respond. And they say, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. At the very tail end of verse 18, we also serve the Lord, for He is our God. They are responding to Joshua, right? He's called the assembly together, all the elders, all the leaders, all the officers, all the judges, everybody's there, all the tribes are there. They are responding to His leadership. He's a thermostat. He is saying to them, you have a choice to make. As for me, choice is already made. As for me, it is already settled. I will serve the Lord. And the people in unison respond back. So do we. God forbid that we would forsake him. We make the choice you make, Joshua. We will also serve the Lord. And then something striking happens in verse 19. In verse 19, Joshua said unto the people, ye cannot serve the Lord. Is that not the most counterintuitive thing in this? Serve the Lord, serve the Lord, serve the Lord. Okay, we'll do it. You can't. What are you talking about? How defeating is this that Joshua tells them they can't? When you get to verse 20, you'll begin to understand why. He says, if you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, then he, the true God, will turn and do you hurt and consume you after that he hath done you good. When you get to verse 21, and the people said unto Joshua, nay, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, okay, Now here it gets very legal in its terminology. Your witnesses against yourself that you have chosen you the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. This is legal terminology in the Hebrew. And in verse 23, Joshua brings down the hammer. Here's the definitive clincher. Now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. Here's what Joshua is saying. Two million hands go up in the air. We're on the team. We want to serve the Lord. And in effect, Joshua says, now everybody put your hands down. Because here's what I know to be true. You are serving with your lips, but you are not serving with your lives. Because everyone here that just raised their hand and said, you got it. We won't capitulate. We won't do anything that compromises. We are with you 100%. You have little idols in your tents. And before you fully 100% commit to following and serving God, why don't you go back to your tent and get rid of the little pagan idols that you have in there? Because here's the truth. Back in their tents were little artifacts that had been handed down from the previous generation. And little shrines and little false gods and little idols that they were still kneeling before and they were still worshiping all the while they were shouting out loud, not us, 
We serve. And Joshua says to them, stop. Don't just pay lip service. Back it up with your lives. How stunning is it that according to the vision of God, Joshua knows he's given his last speech. Joshua knows, much like when Moses passed off the scene, they are prone to look at a leader and want to follow a leader and obey him. And he's saying, stop looking at me. Stop looking at what we've accomplished. It's always been God. He's already told you everything you need to know, and you can't capitulate even in the smallest instances. You have a choice to make. It's a personal thing that only you can do because all of us are serving someone. And before you just raise your hand and say, can't wait to get out of here and serve God and only God, you have some tent work to do. You have some things back at home that need to be cleaned out. You have some corners of your heart where you're calling the shots. You're still chasing materialism. You're still dominated by greed. You still capitulate to lust and envy. You still have a raging temper. You still give in to yourself and all of your wanton passions. You have a little bit of tent work to do before you raise your hand and say you're on the team. Jesus was teaching. It's the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And he says this in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount in verse 24. Jesus says, No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. In that phrase, he is speaking of materialism. You can't do it. You cannot chase the passion of your flesh, your old carnal nature, and relentlessly serve God. You can't do both. I happen to believe that in application, that's kind of a fill-in-the-blank verse. You cannot serve God and fill-in-the-blank. You cannot serve God and your own ambition. You cannot serve God and your own ideology. You cannot serve God in materialism. You cannot serve God in envy. You cannot serve God and your own temper. You cannot do it. You either serve God or you do not. And that's what Joshua is saying. He's not saying pick a God to serve. He is saying if you are not serving the Lord, now you have a choice to make. Which impotent, absolute nothing, void of any power, utterly useless God will you serve? Will it be yourself? Will it be your own ambitions? Will it be your own calendar? Will it be your own ideology? What is it that you're going to serve? But know this before you make your choice. None of it matters. It's all vapid. It's all empty. It's all vain. So the choice really isn't there to be made. All that we must do as believers is humbly capitulate to serve God and to fear God. Why would I do that? Because everything you have, God has given you. And we must be less impressed with what we have accomplished and more impressed with what God has done through us. We need to stop acting like we're utterly confused and how to navigate life in a chaotic culture. He's told us everything. Instead of questioning why, why don't we just adhere to what's already been communicated? Why don't we actually spiritually mature and stop compromising in the smallest of spiritual ways and stand? Why don't we comprehend that we have to make a choice again today and again tomorrow and then again Tuesday and it's a personal thing because we are serving somebody. If you are not serving the Lord, then choose. Which impotent nothing God, vapid, vain God, will you serve?
Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.